6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Jude, verses 11 through 13. a mediator, one Moses, in this case, is he needed? I think so. He was a type. What happened in John 14, 6? Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Heavy words, often quoted, very pleasant. Stop and think what they say. One way. Is the cross really necessary? Boy, there's lots of answers to that, but I'm repeatedly drawn into Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to, I've been skipping some of the background stuff here, but I think this is one I really want to get into because it affects you and I every day. We all ponder this strange, rigorous, narrow concept of the cross. Is the cross really necessary? I'd like you to travel with me from Matthew chapter 26, verse 36 for a few verses. We're talking Gethsemane here, the olive grove at the base of the Mount of Olives, just across from the, what we call the Golden Gate, the entrance to the temple. They've left. They've crossed the valley. They're at this place, which apparently was one of their favorite places in the evening to pray. Then come with Jesus with them to a place called Gethsemane, which means the oil press. That's an interesting pun too, isn't it? And saith unto his disciples, sit here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of his. In other words, Peter, James, and John are the insiders. They get to go in a little closer. And began to get very sorrowful and um, very depressed. And by the way, how many were left alone? Peter, James, John, how many were left behind? Eight, good for you. How many people were in the ark? May I not have anything to do with anything, but I'll leave you with that to wonder. <laughs> Verse 38. Then saith he unto them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Those are heavy words. Don't let their familiarity mislead you. Look at them. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry here and watch with me. And he went a little further, fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, get this prayer. Listen carefully what he's saying. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Did he know what was coming? You bet. He's known it for a long time. He's finally announced it to them. I'm going to Jerusalem and will suffer death. Does he know what's going to come that evening? Does he know what's coming the next morning? Does he know what the next day is going to bring? Yes. Does he welcome it? No. And I'm not trying to take anything away from his commitment to us. Don't misread me. But he prays, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Satan offered him that, the temptations. He turned it down. Satan said, Hey, take a shortcut. Worship me and we'll pass all this stuff. I'll give you all the people and all the nations and the kingdoms and all the stuff. Interesting. He never challenged Satan's ownership of it. We went the hard way. But he gets to the final hour. He says, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what a wonderful word. Underline that in your Bible. I'm sure glad that's there. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Translated in English, there's no other way. Moving on, he comes to the disciples and find them asleep. And we always focus on the sleep issue. They didn't stay awake. He wakes them and he goes and prays again. 
in the story here, we often don't notice what he prays three times. He says, the disciples watch and pray, he entered on temptation, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Then he went again and prayed the second time and said, let's quote it again, verse 42, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. Same essential concept. Then he came and found them sleep again, left them and went away again, prayed a third time, saying the same words. If there's any other way for anybody ever to get into heaven other than the way of cross, Jesus Christ died in vain and his prayer was not answered. That's heavy. It's not very attractive. We like to somehow feel that the way is bigger than that, but that's not what he said. Narrow is the way and straight is the gate that leads to salvation. Broad is the gate that leads where? You're going through a gate with lots of other people and everybody's welcome. You got the wrong gate. <laughs> so Korah and these guys have rebelled against Moses. They didn't feel that, you know, that Moses was, had some special ordination. They're going to get a lesson in the ordination of Moses, if you will, in Numbers chapter 16, starting about verse 31. That's me up at verse 28. It's kind of funny. Moses said, uh, verse 28, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these works. Grab your attention, guys, Moses says, for I have not done them out of my own mind. If these men die a common death all, of all men, and if they be visited upon the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open up her mouth and swallow them up, with all that pertains to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. <laughs> Not to worry. That it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split open that was under them. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their houses, and all the men that appertained to Korah and, all, and their goods. How many were there? Three? No. 250 plus buddies. They and all that pertained to them went down, and this is an interesting word to me, they went down alive into Sheol. I mean, I mean, I thought they were alive when they started, but I think it's an interesting phrase. And the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. Now, that's what I call a climactic finish. Jude places Korah third, because by doing that, Cain... Balaam and Korah describe a process. They choose a way, they rush headlong into that way, and perish at the end. One of the interesting things that I'm fascinated by the book of Jude is its craftsmanship. The Holy Spirit skillfully picks every word and has structured this precisely. We shouldn't leave this without talking about the grand apostasy, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. All of this that Jude's talking about is prophetic. And I'll take just a quick look at it now. It's familiar to you, I'm sure, but we'll, it's an appropriate place to take a quick look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it's hard to pick this off because it's full of the great apostasy led by the what we sometimes call the Antichrist, the man of sin. Verse 3, Let no man deceive you by any means that that day shall not come, except there be a falling away first, that the man of sin may be revealed, the, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, the temple of God is a specific thing, and, and, and so on. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things, and he goes on here. Let's pick it up about verse um, 8. Then shall that wicked one be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth 
and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. But that's a flash future, if you will, not a flash back, but a flash forward. He's assuming you understand that's ultimately going to happen. Verse 9, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. That's a heavy sentence. This guy's not a phony. This guy's not a charlatan. He's not pretending to have power. He's not pretending to do phony miracles with all power and signs and lying wonders. Those are the same Greek words used of the miracles in the Gospels. They're going to have supernatural guess. And with all deceivableness of, of unrighteousness in them, that per, in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should receive the lie. Proper, put a definite article there. It's not a lie, the lie, the ultimate lie that they might be judged who believed not the truth and had pleasure in righteousness. The same process shows here, and they were contrasted with us who have chosen from the beginning. So the only way you get through all of this is to be supernaturally elected by, the, by God and, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So there's an ultimate super apostasy yet coming that I think is very close that we're on the threshold of, and that's why spending some time in what the Scripture says about a, a, a apostasy is worthwhile. We've taken... Uh, a large time on verse 11. Now we're going to quickly pick up verses 11 and 12, 12 and 13, just to keep the momentum going here. We sort of do that, take one verse for an hour and a half and then two verses for 10, 10 seconds, but that's okay. <laughs> verses 12 and 13 are not that hard. That's why we're going to just flow with this, but they have five word pictures occur here. Let's read verses 12 and 13. There are spots in your love, uh, these, he's speaking again of apostasy, the whole subject of apostasy. These are spots in your love feast. The word spots, unfortunate here. The word is actually rocks, in the sense of hidden rocks to a mariner. If you're sailing, the Greek word there is, that is, is the rock that, does, that you don't see but ends up being your shipwreck. These are spots in your love feast. See the agape feast. They met to fellowship and have feasts. These guys came to eat and plunder, in effect. They didn't come to the church social to fellowship and share Christ. They came because the potluck was great. Okay, that's the flavor of it. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. That's the first thing, these hidden rocks. I'll come back to them. Second one. Clouds are they without water, carried about by the winds. Clouds are for what? For rain. These are clouds that are carried about by the wind that, that offer Deceit. They don't have water. That's the second one. Third one. Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. I'll come back to these. Fourth one. Uh, raging waves of the sea foaming out their shame. And the fifth one. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Two verses with five very articulate graphic images concatenated in there. These are the hidden rocks in your love feasts when they feast without fear. There are clouds without water carried about by the winds. There are trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, pick, uh, plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea foaming, with, uh, foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Great. Let's look at that briefly. Five things. Hidden rocks, waterless clouds. Now the word for trees, by the way, the Greek is, is a combination of the word for autumn and the word to wane. These are late autumn trees. Now, you and I aren't normally agricultural. What does that mean? That's without, they're without fruit. Matter of fact, let's go through these first. 
the hidden rocks. The, the Greek term here implies reefs below the ocean threatening safe navigation. Rocks that are known are not as big a problem. These rocks are hidden. So they perform a threat. People among us in the fellowship who really aren't of the body of Christ. The agape feast thing, if you want to research that, is in 1 Corinthians 11. You can look at that. There's a phrase in verse 21 that deals with that. The second example was clouds without water. Now, this is the, the, the deceit and discouragement for the thirsty of a cloud without water is in contrast to Luke 12 and so forth, clouds that have water, that are the living water, so forth. Without water, also, it suggests dry places. And in Matthew 12, 43, that's where evil spirits are said to wander, in the dry places, right? Clouds, it says here, they're carried aside by the winds. The word winds is the wind. In the Old Testament is ruach. In the New Testament is pneuma. And the same word is used for spirit. Wind and spirit, same words used. These guys are carried about by the winds. Why? Because they're bond slaves to Satan. Romans 6.16, John 3.8, a couple of places to look at that. By the way, a cloud doesn't go where it pleases. It goes where the winds carry it. And these guys are, these are waterless clouds carried by the wrong winds. The third thing was the autumn trees. Now, we have this concept of the harvest. Believers are gathered into his barn in Matthew 13, right? Others are rooted up and transgressors rooted out. That's in Matthew 15 and Proverbs 2, 22, other places. The other phrase that occurs here, it can't help but catch your eye, is twice dead. Jude uses the phrase in here, but these trees fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. What do you mean twice dead? Well, several things. They're dead to the fruit of profession, and they're dead to the root of possession. They're dead to the, to, uh, the fruit of profession. They didn't bear fruit, so they're dead in that sense. They're also dead in the sense of root of possession. They're rooted up. They have no possession. You know, they're, they're no longer there. This, and that's 1 Timothy 5, 6, for those who want to chase that idea. Perhaps more provocative to all of us is Revelation 20, 14, which it speaks of the second death. The scripture speaks of two deaths. Now, we know from 1 Thessalonians that, the, that the, 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 the architecture of man is at least tripartite. Spirit, right? Soul and body. Natural death that you and I are aware of, the separation of the soul and the body. Spiritual death with the separation of the soul and the spirit. All of us have two deaths. It's important which order they come. You and I, our second death was taken care of at the cross. So the death that remains has no fear to us. Tragic it is for those who's, who's got it in the wrong order, whose second death is final. That's what Revelation talks so articulate about. And you get that out of Revelation 20, and we'll keep moving here. Now the contrast of these trees would be trees planted by the rivers of living water. In Psalm 1-3, Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. He goes on here and talks about wild waves. Now the sea is repeatedly used in the scripture of the unsaved. The wicked are, Isaiah 57, 20, 21. The wicked are like this troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Idiomatically, the sea is always used of humanity and its crass, self-serving, unhappy state. A couple of other observations. Psalm 104, 9 says that God has imposed limits on the sea. Luke 10, 19 says, nothing shall hurt you. And, and 1 Peter 2, 12 says, all to account to his glory. In Psalm 89, 9, he rebukes and stills the seas. It's interesting. I mean, he rules and, and stills the sea. Matthew 8, 26 is where, remember where he has the storm? He rebukes the sea. Interesting phrase. Who's causing that storm? Satan. There's a lot going on behind the scenes you have to look carefully to notice. 
And this whole theme of the sea you can carry forward. And many people make a big mystical thing out of it. It's kind of interesting that there's more going on there than maybe you and I are generally are aware of. But what's fascinating, what seems to substantiate that viewpoint, that rather mystical viewpoint, is Revelation 21.1 in the, the new world, new heaven, new earth. One of the observations made is that there was no more sea. So speaking idiomatically, there's something uh, negative consistently used about that idiom. In any case, these apostates are raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. And the final example he uses is wandering stars. Now, the phrase here implies meteorites. That's the term that was they would use in those days because they're, you know, like wandering, you know, falling stars. But what is a falling star? It's a meteorite. Its illumination is derived. It flashes brilliantly for a brief time, right? And if you'll excuse the Missler translation that then makes an ash of itself. Okay. Sorry. Stars are in orbits ordained by their creator. Judges 5.20. These are not. These are wandering stars as opposed to stars in orbit. That's the concept. Okay. And it says they are destined for the blackness of the outer darkness forever. Matthew 8.12. I think this is very interesting because we're discovering black holes. Black, black holes. Certain stars have a certain gravity. If the, gravity if, the, if, the, if the characteristics are such that there's enough mass, that there's enough gravity, it'll collapse because the gravity of the star causes it to collapse. And if there's enough mass there, it collapses enough to become very, very dense. As the density increases, the gravitational forces increase, and the thing is, in a sense, circular. It finally gets to the point so that it gets so intensely gravitational and strong that even light can't leave. Anything that gets near it gets drawn into it. And so because of that, there's no radiation from these things. In fact, neutron stars, there's a whole area you can get into, and I won't get, we're short for time to get into all of this, and it's a little distracting. But the point is, the existence of a black hole is a very provocative idea in physics and astronomy and astrophysics because you can't see them, but you can detect them by the absence of stuff that's there and, and, and so on. There's, they're finding ways to prove the existence of these things. But what's really intriguing about this is, is that... The black holes have no light because light can't escape from them. Anything that comes near to them gets drawn into it. And incidentally, the mathematics of it is such that it's believed that within them, time doesn't exist. They're timeless. That's a whole other issue. Some feel they're time tunnels, and there's all kinds of cosmic, you know, cosmological speculations about them. But it's very, very interesting to me, and I, you should be grateful I, didn't, I, I saved you tonight with the whole diatribe on black holes which have nothing to do with this anyway. But it's interesting here that Jude says that these are wandering stars, not in orbit, but loose, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Isn't that interesting? These guys are destined for, at least spiritually speaking, black holes. That's kind of fun, I think. Now, a couple of things here. Uh, just a couple of observations that are interesting with these five graphs. And I'm leading somewhere, trust me. Hidden rocks... Unseen danger. Waterless clouds, false promise. Right? Autumnal trees, barren profession. Raging waves, wasted effort. Wandering stars, aimless course, ultimate perishing. It's interesting to me to see these five, for not only are they poetically articulate ways of expressing the spiritual truth, they're in a very specific order. 
It's not obvious from the rocks. And, you know, the interesting, nice, you read this, he says, you have pretty articulate, kind of poetic language, and you move on. If you analyze it, the unseen danger, the false promise, the barren profession, wasted effort, aimless course, and destruction. It's, again, a process. This passage has been crafted masterfully. Now, these five graphical ideas, poetically articulated, present the same downward degeneration that verse 11 started with. That's why I've tied this all together. The men were present at the Christian love feast. They were carried away, fruitless, uprooted, dead, through shame. Outer darkness is their destiny. That's what those five things say. Let me give you a couple more contrasts, and we've made it. I want you to contrast these five things with our Lord. Hidden rocks threatening shipwreck with the rock of our salvation. Clouds without even a temporary blessing with he who comes with the clouds. The trees of death, this one's easy, tree of life. The restless troubled sea with he who leads beside still waters. The wandering stars in eternal darkness with the bright and morning star. Interesting, isn't it? Whenever you do that, go one step further. Let's contrast these five with the believers in Christ, those who abide in Christ. These are dangerous rocks. We are living stones. 1 Peter 2.5. He speaks, these guys are waterless clouds. We are sources of living water. John 7. The dead trees versus the tree of righteousness, Isaiah 61.3. Raging raves versus, well, we have sing it all the time, right? Peace like a river. Let's use that. Isaiah 48.18. Wandering stars, in this case, look at Daniel 12. Three says that we, those who win made righteousness, shall, what? Shine as the stars forever. Those are stars in orbit. Those are not wandering stars. Now, yes, there's points here. You can take this out for yourself. The point I'd like to leave you with is the craftsmanship that the Holy Spirit has woven into this uh, text. Okay, so that's Jude 11, 12, and 13, and we've run our time. I'm going to leave you with a Bible trivia piece for next time. If you, want, you know the answer, don't tell. Make, the, make your friends dig it out for themselves. We all know that Methuselah was the oldest man in the Bible, lived 969 years, yet he died before his father. Isn't that a dandy? Think about that. We will deal next time with Methuselah. He's the oldest man in the Bible, yet he died before his father. And if you have a Bible friend, they get stumped on that. They'll immediately catch on when you recognize who was Methuselah's father. Enoch. He obviously did not die. But we're going to discover some things in, in Genesis. Next time, your lesson for next time is Genesis chapter 5. You're going to discover some amazing things out of the early chapters of Genesis next time. We're going to talk about Enoch. It's going to be fun. That's one reason I wanted to do it this way, because I want to leave time for Enoch, who was one of the earliest prophets. He has a fascinating ministry that takes some digging to get what's really going on there. The story of Methuselah and Enoch is really provocative. What's really interesting is a false book of Enoch quotes from Jude. It can cause a lot of confusion. There are several. In fact, there's three books of Enoch floating around the literature circuit that's, that's apocryphal. There is a phrase 
a little different than the one in here. And many people think Jude took it from the, this ancient book of Enoch, except the ancient book of Enoch's a fraud. And I can, I'll show you why it is from its own text next time. Don't waste your time in the Apocrypha unless you're just a scholar of ancient texts and you like to spend time in dusty libraries. But um, we'll deal with that next time. Enoch and Methuselah and, and uh, that whole bit. I'm taking for granted that those of you in this room are not apostates. Well, you wouldn't be here. You would find better ways to spend your Monday nights than to come here to, you know, these things aren't that interesting. So why are we spending our time on this? Because if you're saved, I don't believe you can get unsaved. I do think you have a commitment to abide in the Lord, and that's a whole other thing. We're talking about people here who've re re really rejected the truth, having known it and then rejected it later. That's what an apostate is. So why are, why are we spending all this time? Yes, we get some insights in terms of our walk. I hope there's been some of that tonight. The way of Cain, we should have new insights, hopefully. The error of Balaam and the rebellion of Korah. Those are meaningful ideas, even though we're not apostates. But the real thing we want to do is understand apostasy because it is around us. It comes in attractive forms. It's easy to get confused. And furthermore, it's going to be the characteristic environment of the end. We talk about prophecy. We look at the Soviet Union and we look at the, the, the peace euphoria that's in the air. It's all prophesied. All prophesy. We look at Israel and what's going on in that land. We look at Europe, what's going on there. All these things are consistent with our perceptions of biblical prophecy. But the stage that's going to really characterize the final chapter is in a widespread worldwide global apostasy that will climax in the adulation of the man of sin. For lots of reasons, some of which we sort of just skipped over in the interest of time tonight, 2 Thessalonians 2, etc. For lots of reasons, I believe we can demonstrate the church will not be here during the so-called tribulation period. That does not mean, though, that the whole stage setting won't be visible to us. And in fact, as you get tuned to this and sensitive to it, you will take a certain kind of encouragement by seeing the world fulfill its destiny by becoming what it's headed for. So it may sound very, very elliptical, perhaps almost a little sadistic, but don't misunderstand me. I think it's important for us as Christians to be informed and understand the signs of our times. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. <music>